No, I say I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football, everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I'm going to attach you back to Manchester. The only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking mentality <laughs> giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country because these players and where we play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over and that's still decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony, I have to be honest. Stephen Kenny, we've won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And Vitek is there! Robbie Brady brings us all to Hello and welcome to the Three at the Back podcast. Thank you for listening. Wherever you get your podcasts, please subscribe, rate and review and help us along the way. I'm joined this week by Enda Higgins and a first-time debutant, Oshin Doherty. Hope you're well, lads. Yep, evening. How's it going, lads? How's it going? All good now. Uh, this week in part two, we'll be joined by James Grimes from The Big Step to talk about the prevalence of gambling ads and their campaign to curb the amount of ga- uh, ads in football, on football shorts, in stadiums and on television. Um, he'll tell us about his story uh, and some of the efforts they're going to raise awareness for the uh, increased uh, amount of ads around sport and football. Um, so we're very much looking forward to hearing from him. Um, on the football front then, lads, I suppose this week, uh, it's been a bit pretty busy one. We've had the Champions League, we've had um, the usual kind of um, controversy, Manchester City, um, a little bit of breaking news this evening with the, the Der Spiegel investigation that we'll get to. Um, Amnesty have come up with a report on, on the World Cup in Qatar, which is looking ever the disaster um, and, and kind of still to this day kind of scratching our heads how, how that it's somehow still going ahead. Um, but on, on the Manchester United front end, uh, I suppose it sounds like uh, you have your man, you have the, the next uh, heir to the throne there in, uh, in Eric Ten Hag, who um, I don't think it's confirmed yet, but uh, it seems to be he is the, the number one choice. Uh, how do you feel about that one? Yeah, it was only a matter of time we went down the bald route like everybody else. But um, <laughs> I think uh, it, it's interesting how it all developed in terms of this uh, Ten Hag-Pochettino competition. I think Pochettino would probably have been a, a safer pair of hands in terms of what he would have tried to do over the next three or four years. Although I feel his failures in Paris, particularly in Europe, uh, have been slightly overlooked by people saying they're an unmanageable squad, etc., etc., um, while at the same time praising his charisma and how he handles players in general. For me, that was always kind of a paradox. Um, whereas with Ten Hag, especially with his performances in Europe and how he was able to rebuild the Ajax squad after losing so many key players, uh, I think it's probably the braver choice, uh, although I don't think there was too much difference between the two. And knowing United, Ten Hag probably being about you know 90% cheaper than hiring Pochettino. Uh, probably had something to do with it as well, but overall, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be a a very busy summer ahead with the players out of contract and those that want to leave. So we're reaching a phase where you know there's a natural cultural reboot about to happen anyway. So you know, apparently in his interview, he he outlined the next five years and what he wants to achieve. Now, any football manager looking 
past two or three years is extremely ambitious in this current climate for any club. Uh, but uh, I'm I'm excited to see what he can do. He obviously has a very structured approach at Ajax. Apparently, he has you know full say of everything that happens at the club, and he had you know great support from Van der Sar and and obviously Overmars before he got himself into a bit of bother, which Ten Hag publicly probably didn't deal with as well as I would have hoped uh, from a future United manager if it is going to be him. But uh, that aside, I, I think it'll it'll be an exciting appointment and. You know, we've seen what he can do with the youth players coming through in terms of, you know, Timber and Gravenberch. <clears throat> and if you look at the under-18s and under-23s that United have available to them at the moment, it's probably the strongest group of players we've had since, you know, arguably the class of 92. There's been other other teams that have had one or two, the 2011 team especially. But I think as, as a core group of young players coming through at an academy level, um, you know, McNeil, Hugel, Garancho, Hannibal Mejbri, uh, Kobe Menu. I think they'll all be really, really excited about potentially getting an opportunity under Ten Hag, considering I think Gravenberch is still only 18. He's been consistently playing in midfield for the last two years for Ajax. So um, I, I, I was edging towards him over Pochettino, even though I was slightly changing my mind earlier in the week. But um, I think it's an exciting appointment and we'll we'll see how it goes. But he'll need a lot of luck because coming into a pretty toxic environment at United at the moment, it'll be tough for anybody. Yeah, I think um, I think it's definitely the riskier choice to probably go with Ten Hag instead of Pochettino. Um, just full disclosure, I'm a Man United fan myself, so I would be I would be more um, I would have been more in the Ten Hag camp than Pochettino, purely because you know that time, Pochettino's time at PSG hasn't gone well at all. They didn't win the league last year. They had the the collapse against Real in the Champions League a few weeks ago. Um, and even back to his time at Spurs, like that last season, he got to the Champions League final, but the league form was very, very ropey. Um, so, like, I- I'm actually surprised that United have gone this way um, because, like, Pochettino would have been the bigger name, the more famous person, would have got more eyes on the club, um, which is usually something that Man United love going for those kind of decisions. Um but yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how he gets on. And I still wonder how Ranić is going to fit in with all of this. Um, I'd imagine if Ranić is hanging around, the two are going to have to work very closely together. So it's going to be very interesting to see um, how United get on. It's going to be a, a very important summer, but you're kind of saying every summer with Man United, this is the summer that they have to get things right. So mm. I suppose we'll just have to wait and see, see how he gets on. Yeah, the Ranić thing is interesting. There were rumours, I think even as, as soon as this week, saying he'll only be involved four days a month or something like that, which I think would be a complete waste considering he's been at the club every day since <clears throat> since he obviously took the interim role. And I, I do think he he would be a great person, <clears throat> excuse me, for a new manager to have in terms of obviously knowing the squad and knowing the players. And in general, he would have a similar type of philosophy to Ten Hag, whose record signing I think is spending 20-odd million on Sebastian Heller in the summer so. You know, neither of them are historically big spending individuals anyways and, you know, very much like structure and approach and, you know, high press, etc. So I think as personalities go, they would work quite well together. Uh, and apparently Ten Hag was, um, uh, a, you know, the number one choice for Ranić as well. So I would hope that he's heavily involved, but no one united it. Apparently he's just going to be answered a few emails a couple of times a month, which is a bit of a waste. And we actually had it on the back page football website uh, last week that he's he might even be returning to Moscow as well. So 
uh, I, I'd hope that isn't the case, but you know, knowing United and the lack of structure that they tend to have, it, it wouldn't surprise me if Ranjik's role going forward was not influential at all, which is a bit of a shame, really. I didn't realise we'd uh, invited another United fan on. I'm, I'm feeling very outnumbered all of yeah, a sudden. Need some balance. This finally, week. finally. Some We're taking over. <laughs> um, I suppose. Oshin, you alluded to it there. I think the PSG job is essentially what's kind of put Pochettino out of the running, or not even out of the running, but kind of closed the gap between Den Haag and, and Pochettino. Um, I think you just can't look at that PSG form this season and think that, you know, Pochettino is, is, is the guy to go for. I think, you know, it, it's shown at this point that, you know, you might as well, um, if you want to call it a bigger risk, go for, for Ten Hag. But I suppose, you know, my concern would be if if you look at Manchester United at the moment, and you look at where he's coming from from Ajax, where it's very structured, as you said, and they they had, you know they had the director of football, they have like a, a conveyor belt of of young talent that they seem to be able to replace uh, quite easily. Will he be given the time to get to that four or five six years? Um, and would you would you would you call this a reset at United? Like is is this kind of a, a smack the reset button or? Will there be kind of an expectation or a pressure on him to kind of not only rebuild the club, but also, you know, get top four, deliver trophies? Or will he be given the, the chance to kind of breathe a little bit and, and try and, you know, get things back running properly? Well, it's um, definitely a reset. Yeah, in terms of obviously we've players coming out of contract in Cavani, Lingard, Pogba, uh, and then four or five others who, who will definitely try and force their way out of the club, likely. Bailly, Twensby, Martial, a couple of others, Hendersons, I would consider to be relatively hot property if you're, you know, Newcastle or Spurs looking for a new goalkeeper. So I think in terms of the timing, the the reset is 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 more natural rather than a new manager coming in like Van Hal did, for example, and, and going on a kind of selling spree in the last week of the summer window. Uh, in terms of Pochettino, I, th- I think the PSG form is valid, not only in terms of handling the personalities, but... You know, playing Hakimi in a flat back four when he's been phenomenal as a wing back at Inter and, and Dortmund in the past two to three seasons was always a, a strange choice for me, uh, and and that cost him when he when he kept Benzema on side. I think for the first or second goal, and and as well, you know, Donnarumma hasn't been in great form this season. So I, I think a a manager with a a more riskier uh, or braver attitude probably would have picked Kaylor Navas, especially going back to Madrid as well. Uh, he's he's never really failed to deliver on a big Champions League night, whereas Donnarumma's form since the Euros has been very, very ropey. Um, so it's definitely a more riskier move, but um, I think United are certainly trying to put that structure in place. I mean, Ajax are fortunate in terms of not only did they have Van der Sar and, and Overmars and a sensational youth academy there. I mean, they are a Bayern type of club who can go and buy the best player from their competitors like they did with Stephen Burkhouse this summer, uh, who was fine or captain. So he won't have that type of joy at United, unfortunately. But, um, you know, I, I still think it's, it's, it's a more interesting appointment at the very least, yeah. And and I'd say as well, um, in terms of will he be given, you know, three, four, five years, if if I know anything about Man United, probably not. But I would like to see him get a good go at it. Um, mm. but you know, you look at the history, it seems to be two years and then like everything's rosy in the garden and then all of a sudden the leaks start coming out of camp and within a couple of months it's all ended in tears. So 
I would be hopeful though. I, I would mm. be hopeful, but yeah. we're already um, having the leagues, aren't we? Really saying some players don't exactly don't think he's up for it, and, and Gary Neville has already kind of had a few daggers in and, and a few things like that. So I don't think that helps the mood around the club as well, which is you know unfortunate. Um, but. Anyways, we'll see how it goes. No, it's it's, uh, it's never a good sign when the um, murmurs of discontent start before he's even taken the job. Yeah, but I don't think these guys want to be managed by anybody at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh. yeah. <laughs> um, on the Champions League front, lads, um, I suppose talk of players that do uh, are happy to be managed by uh, by one person in particular is uh, is at Liverpool um, 3-1 win against Benfica um on Tuesday night and I mean that opening 45 was probably one of the best 45s I've seen from Liverpool all season um, I think as well as that from 1 to 11 it was probably on paper their their strongest most attacking team um, I think it was the first time Thiago, Fabinho and, and Keita all started together and obviously the caveat there that Thiago and or Keita are usually um, in the physio room but um, you know the approach that Liverpool seem to be taking now with Diaz on the left, Mane more central, um, a little bit closer to his old friend uh, uh, Mo Salah on the right, um, it seems like we've kind of seen the direction now that Klopp is wanting to go. Um, and I thought Kate in particular was really impressive as well, getting very high up the pitch. Um, and then into the second half, then obviously conceding very early on, and you're like, Jesus, here we go again. It's going to be two all. It's going to be a, you know another KG last... 45 minutes and and we're kind of holding on and and not kind of going into the second leg with a with a bigger lead and ultimately obviously uh, finishing 3-1 there but and I suppose you know what what would have been your your major takeaway from from seeing that 11 and and, and what Liverpool um are capable of um because I suppose you know we won't spend much time talking about Man City and Atletico but I think coming out of this week we're probably in my opinion you know Liverpool and Man City seem a cut above everyone else that's left there in the in the Champions League. Yeah, I mean, if you were to ask me to write down my most exciting eleven that I would want to see, if somebody put a gun to my head, uh, you know, you probably have certainly that front six for sure, uh, and then probably you'd, you'd bring in uh, Mata beside Van Dijk. But I mean, it was a really really exciting and gutsy um, selection from Klopp. Uh, I was very surprised, especially. Thought Henderson would definitely start, but you know, against probably more tricky opposition, he would have. Same with Diogo Jota, but uh, I thought Liverpool in the first half were extremely impressive. Were on the verge of losing their way in the second half and really lost control of the game. At you know, after conceding, but uh, that aside, I thought it was really, really impressive. And Liverpool are hitting that annoying type of phase at the moment where it doesn't really matter how they play; they're still getting results. I thought you know Saturday. The early kickoff was very, very cagey. Even there was nervousness yeah. and quietness around Anfield that I, I certainly wouldn't have expected, considering uh, you know the quadruple essentially is still on. But uh, that horror show aside, <laughs> um, I think you know everything seems to be going their way at the moment. Even the way Louis Luis Diaz has integrated into that front three um has been literally perfect for them and now that everybody's seemingly back fit and healthy and, and the options that they have in midfield you know to bring in Curtis Jones Harvey Elliott um Milner Henderson so they basically have almost three players for those three midfield positions so rotation won't be an issue for them I think City will probably pit them in the league but uh it's going to be very close and I think Liverpool are really kind of mm-hmm. 
they're almost at this, you know, perfect formation of this Klopp, uh, Michael Edwards vision that they put together a few years ago, and and everything is just going right for them at the moment. Um, and it's it's tough to argue against anything that they're doing, uh, even though the performances probably aren't, you know, as electric as they were a few years ago. But that's given them more control in matches, and and they've such confidence in what they're doing at the moment that it's not really, you know, about the performance anymore. They're able to churn out results however they play. On Wednesday night, then, um, I mean, tuning into the opening 10, 15 minutes of, of Chelsea Real Madrid, I thought we were in for a, a barnstormer over two legs. I thought they were quite even, um, very open game, um, quite similar to, to, to the to the previous leg, I thought, with uh, with Real and, and PSG. But um, it only took five minutes and, and a little bit of uh, Karen Benzema, um, you know, two of the most unbelievable headed goals you'd probably see in, in, in such a quick space of time. Um, uh, you know, a player getting better with age and, and kind of aging gracefully now that he's uh, he's had the, the shackles of, of Ronaldo moved uh, removed from him slightly. Um, Oshin, I mean, you know, you look at the quality of, of the hat-trick there and, and what, and, you know, how he's performing at the moment. And I saw earlier that uh, Michael Richards, who... Uh, I think a couple of weeks ago after the PSG game, he was he was hesitant to, to put Benzema um, uh, in the same bracket as, as likes of Kane and Lewandowski. One game later, puts them on the same bracket as, as Kane and Lewandowski uh, in typical Micah fashion. But um, a hell of a hell of a two goals. I mean, the, the first one in particular, but the the second one I thought you know to be able to get that kind of looped header as he was moving away to get to kind of. That core power to to swing it around, Mendy was uh, was something else. Yeah, the um, the two headers were ridiculous, but I, I'm still kind of thinking, I, like I still don't know how he got that little bit of power on the second header to even get it past Mendy because it was nothing on the ball. It was it was just unreal. And yeah, Michael Richards, um, yeah, well, I don't know, I don't know what he's on about to be honest. Like I was watching the game last night um, when we brought her, and I said to him at one point, I was like, he's he's probably the best striker in the world, Benzema at the moment. He just Especially in the first half yesterday, completely ran the show, um, took his chances when they came, uh, took advantage when Mendy and Rudiger had a bit of a bit of a mess uh, for that third goal, and then even later on in the game when Chelsea started kind of piling forward, he was dropping out into the left wing position and kind of he got them ticking over again for the last ten fifteen minutes. I just thought he was uh, brilliant last night, but I think Madrid are such a strange team because like. Uh, for part for you're right. The first fifteen twenty minutes, yes, I was like these are dead even. These two teams here, and then a five minute blitz, they blew them away. Vinicius uh, hit the crossbar as well. Probably could have racked on another couple of goals mm. last night. And then you think that PSG game um, or the PSG uh, tie, I suppose, a few weeks ago, where like they were played off the park up until the last twenty minutes of the second leg, and then. PSG had their annual uh, collapse in the Champions League and Madrid, I think Benzema again scored a hat-trick that night. So like, and then after that, they had the um, Barcelona hammered them in the Clasco. So I don't really know what to make of Madrid. And I think it kind of paints a bit of a bad picture for Chelsea. I kind of fear where um, where Chelsea are going after the Brentford game and then getting well, kind of pieced apart. It sounds like night. Tuchel has, uh, has given up hope already. I think he was asked, uh, are they still in the tie? And he said no. Yeah, that's a very strange quote. I think he said the tie was dead was his exact words. Like, I mean, mm. that's, yeah, that's especially with no way goal as well. But uh, yeah, he was in particularly moody fashion last night too, with poor old Des Kelly. 
Yeah, reminds, <laughs> reminds me of some of the Brian Cody, Marty Morrissey interviews down through the years, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think it was a bad night all around for Tuchel because I think some of his tactics were a bit a bit mad. I was texting one of my friends is a big Chelsea fan, um, and like you know leaving Christensen out on Vinicius for a whole first half when everyone in the world mm. could see he was just getting in that gap between James and Christensen. Um, and then even going, like, he he played with a two in midfield, like he always does. But sure, Madrid had a three, and Valverde was dropping back in to make it almost a 4v2. Like, there was, there was times in the first half where Chelsea couldn't really get near the ball, and then Madrid were breaking so quickly. So, yeah, I don't think it was a, don't think it was a good night for Tuchel, and um, I'd I, in typical Chelsea fashion, I, I'd say uh, it's not too far from uh, turning a bit sour. Yeah, and I mean, seeing N'Golo Akente getting hauled off at halftime, um, I think he really struggled alongside Jorginho in, in the Chelsea midfield, as you said. Um, kind of um, outnumbered there with Luka Jmodric, um looking 10 years uh, younger than, than he does out there alongside Benzema. Um, on the other side of the draw, then, I mean, probably one of the, the biggest um, surprises of the Champions League so far this season. Um, and you look at Unai Emery's story, um, very close to a move to Newcastle a little bit uh, uh, earlier in the season. Um, I think he even interviewed once or twice there. Um, it was reported that it was more or less a done deal. Um, and he kind of reneged on that. And even at the time, I don't think Villarreal were going particularly well in La Liga. They were kind of struggling in mid-table. Uh, and he's turned around now and he's beaten Bayern Munich in in the Champions League quarterfinals. Um, uh, and I don't have the stats uh, at hand, but his his form in knockout football in the Champions League is absolutely unbelievable. And, you know, you see, you know, with all the talk of, of Super Leagues and, and trying to kind of restructure the Champions League and, and put all the power in, in the major players' hands. And you have little Villarreal, I think, population of 50 or 60,000 people absolutely punching above their weight. And again, Unar Emery, and I always kind of allude back to his time in Arsenal where I thought he was, um, I thought, you know, he was just treated very, very unfairly and became nearly a mockery of sorts with, you know, people mimicking his accent and kind of taking the, the mickey out of his uh, his press conferences and never really was given a chance. And yet again, goes out into, into European knockout football and, and, and shows exactly what he's capable of. Yeah, very impressive. And, the only concern you'd have is, you know, especially with the disallow goal, that they they didn't win by two or three because you'd imagine it'd be a much more challenging game at um, the Allianz Arena. But uh, his record in, as you say, Kevin, European football and, and knockout football in general is is phenomenal. And when you consider how, you know, well received Arteta has been at Arsenal after finishing eighth last season, um, you know, and that disrespect that he had in the Premier League. Um, you know, we talk about Ten Hag not, you know, hopefully being given time. I mean, Emery was given no time at all, and you know, the situation he was in at the time at Arsenal as well as almost like a, a Moyes situation at United, where he couldn't win either way. Um, but I thought Villarreal were phenomenal last night. Really, um, their league form has been really patchy this season. Obviously, Jared Moreno being injured is always a huge loss to them, but. You know, the former Dan Juma, who apparently United Scouts were looking at last night as well. Uh, and Pau Torres is one of those players who always seems to up his level, in, you know, in bigger occasions. So uh, it's it's certainly, I think, the most fascinating tie to watch uh, in terms of uh, the next round of games. Uh, City Atleti will probably be an interesting one as well, because uh, I don't expect Atletico to play as negatively as they did um, the last night. But... Um, 
you know, I think Villarreal are in a, a great position to really, you know, pull off the shock of the season. A fear is closer to home than Leeds, um, and I suppose you know something that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago during the international break um, when the Ireland squad was announced was where is Mo- Michael Obafemi? You know, was it his time to to kind of be given a chance, uh, integrated back into the Irish squad, um, and then he scores again, scores two goals at the weekend. I think he's up to, to six goals and six now, and uh, nominated for Championship Player of the Month as well. I saw today. Um, a kind of a, an interesting character, I think, and um, one of his celebrations at the weekend um, in the uh, Swansea Cardiff Derby was uh, kind of the swim motion, um, harking back to, to uh, something that happened back in the as far as back in the eighties, I think, where uh, Swansea fans chased Cardiff fans into the sea or something, and it's kind of stuck ever since then. But uh, listening to to what say Russell Martin has had to say and and, and a few others, I think you know. He's probably been, you know, been had had a negative impact or a negative opinion put on him, but he seems like a real character and a kind of a, an an outspoken person who, you know, does things his own way. Um, but he seems to be kind of finding his own now in and showing a little bit of personality on the field as well. Where you know he's getting goals and he's and he's he's doing the likes of celebrations and he's you know seems to have a great rapport with with the Swansea fans. Um, and I mean, surely. Now coming into the summer, uh, especially when you consider, you know, Will, Will Keane wasn't particularly uh, shooting the lights out uh, against uh, Lithuania, um, uh, or um, uh, yeah, Lithuania where he started, and and uh, Scott Hogan didn't do a huge pile when he came on. That you know, it, it is Michael Obafemi's chance now to come back into the Irish squad and show what he's capable of. Yeah, that um, Obafemi and the international call-ups is all a bit of a weird situation. Um, so, like he said, he doesn't want uh, doesn't want a twenty ones call up because he sees himself as a senior player. And then I believe Kenny said that he kind of it was he didn't go as far as saying as he turned down the call up, but that's basically what he meant, saying uh, because of his previous issues with injury and all this kind of stuff. So, and and I don't I, I don't think Obafemi and Kenny have um, I don't think they have a brilliant relationship because wasn't there a thing um, when he was left out of a squad and he put up a tweet and he did something silly and all this kind of stuff, but. And he was actually speaking of Twitter. Did you see he had a bit of a row with Joe Ledley on Twitter after that whole uh, swim celebration the other day? So he's a man the right people. <laughs> <laughs> but but like he, he's, he's obviously a, playing. He's not shy anyway. No, exactly. And there was another clip of him um, trying to do an interview a few weeks ago, and he was just laughing his head off. He couldn't get through it. So he does seem like he's um, does seem like he's a sound fella, and he's in very good form. Um, I'd hope that he's uh, back in the squad in the summer because I think if you look at if you look at Will Keane, you look at Scott Hogan and Obafemi, which one of them do you think is going to have? Which one of them would you would you want to have the best future with Ireland? And Obafemi is much younger than them, and he's got bags of potential. He's got a very high ceiling, so hopefully he comes back into it. But there seems there seems to be a bit of um, there seems to be a bit of uh, beef there between himself and uh, the management staff, and um, it'll be interesting to see if that gets worked out. Yeah, definitely a character. The entire Swansea YouTube account is just, you know, <laughs> him being interviewed. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's great to have that bit of personality, especially at 21, and he's able to show it on the pitch as well, which, you know, we've been lacking certainly for a long time. And and the thought of Obafemi in a front three with, you know, Ogbeni and Robinson with Cullen behind them is a very intriguing prospect. I felt the omission was very, very strange in terms of, 
how it was communicated publicly. But uh, since then, as you said, Kevin, you know, Lee Martin has said, you know, Obafemi is 100% committed and desperate is actually the word he used to play for Ireland. Yeah. So um, hopefully that sorts itself out going into the summer when, you know, we have a Nations League group that, you know, we have a real chance of of getting positive results from. And, and that number nine position, um, you know, there for me there are really two places up for grabs the midfield position beside Josh Cullen and then the number nine I think every, everybody else almost picks themselves at this point um so if if Obafemi can step up you know especially at 21 years of age it would be fantastic for Kenny going forward um you know obviously had a bit of issues with the past being left out but at the time he wasn't really playing anyway so I didn't see a problem with him being left out at that time but I'd certainly like to see him feature this summer for sure yeah, I think the sooner the better. And like you said, the, the prospect of seeing him alongside Ogbeni, who, um, who the, the Irish fan base has kind of, you know, taken on board so much and there, there seems to be a huge unity there already. I think they'd love the kind of personality that Obafemi brings. Um, and, you know, I thought the celebration, I, 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 when I read the kind of background to it, I thought it was a great rib. Um, obviously, you know, you can kind of frown upon it and say, Jesus, you know, he should be a, he's keeping his head down. But, I mean, it's a big derby game. He's obviously kind of read up on, on, on the history between Cardiff and Swansea and he's got stuck in straight away, which I'm fully on board with. Um, so I think I think the Irish fans would, would love that sort of personality, you know, getting in amongst us uh, if and when he, he does score uh, at the Aviva. Um, I suppose in more serious terms and, and in terms, you know, if you look to the Qatar World Cup, obviously Ireland won't be there, um, you know, it would have been interesting, I think, if Ireland had qualified to see, you know, how many fans would be over there. Obviously, we love uh, an international tournament. We we travel in our droves. We we get fully on board. We 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 have all those kind of viral videos and clips, and 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 it's and it's very much a, a huge event for for a a, a big uh, portion of Irish fans. But by the sounds of it, and you know, reading some of the reports and hearing. Um, interviews with the likes of Miguel Delaney this week, who who were over in Qatar at a kind of a, at the draw, obviously for for the World Cup. But it sounds so far behind. Um, the the general infrastructure isn't ready. Um, you know, even down to accommodation and, and re- restaurant reservations are very limited. Um, it's six or seven months now to the World Cup, and you know, Tarek Panja posted a, a picture of uh, of one of the stadiums. Um, and around it is just complete barren land and, and, and desert. And you'd really have to wonder, you know, obviously, you know, day one, why Qatar was given the World Cup um, and the kind of the, the the hijinks FIFA were usually up to and, you know, reports of bribery and allegations there. But um, as we do kind of finally turn the corner towards the World Cup, it is very worrying to still see reports. And again, more reports today from, from Amnesty International that, that workers' conditions and workers' rights are still being mistreated. That um, that regardless, FIFA are ploughing ahead with with this uh, this tournament, um, despite you know so many um, attributes pointing against why it should be held there. Yeah, and um, I suppose kind of the the saddest thing about that report is that it wasn't very surprising at all um, from seeing the stuff that the likes of Miguel Delaney and Tarek Panja were saying. Uh, it seems just to be like one big uh, construction site, barely any roads or any of this kind of stuff. Like, I mean, staying away from the obvious horrendous labor conditions and all this kind of stuff, you've got 32 teams representing 32 countries, 
hundreds of thousands of people coming into a country and Qatar is like half the size of Dublin. Like it, it doesn't make any sense just from that straight off the bat. But the reports, like it just kind of confirms that um, FIFA's kind of uh, mantra or their explanation for going to these kind of places about growing the game and using the game to improve societies and things like that. It's just a lot of nonsense. Um, and even if FIFA, like they're not going to do anything now um, or six months out and you know, my only hope would be that, like, that the World Cup, that this World Cup is kind of, it's almost like a watershed moment, um, and where we stop letting, you know, these kinds of authoritarian states using sports as, um, uh, I think the the phrase that's been going around is a mass sports washing exercise because that's what it is, and you know, we had it in Russia in 2018, we've had it at countless Olympics, and I think unfortunately this year we're going to see probably the biggest one ever. But um, yeah, very worrying, very worrying stuff coming out of that Amnesty International report. Yeah, and, and Qatar and its response, they've usually tried to be PR friendly, but certainly in the last couple of weeks, they've just said, well, it's happening, get over it kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, you know, they've even stopped trying to deny that there are issues at the World Cup. They've they've just basically know that they're going to get away with it anyway. Um, so it's, uh, I think this could be one of the most depressing international tournaments we'll ever come across. I, mean, I, I can't imagine what state players and, you know, the teams will be in because of the lack of preparation because it's it's in the middle of a season. And then you combine that with the lack of infrastructure and, and the negativity surrounding it in general. And you'd imagine there'd be a, a lack of, you know, fans as well um, because I don't think Europeans are going to, you know, spend their Christmas holidays trying to <laughs> travel to Qatar. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's the, the whole thing is just completely horrific when you actually break it down and... and completely pointless as well and you know sums up Sepp Blatter's time at FIFA you know <laughs> um, that it's been allowed to get this far and you know obviously we've we've seen issues in the past with infrastructure coming up to Russia and certainly coming up to Brazil in in the Olympics but uh, I, I think this is far worse than any of those situations so uh, I can't see any way that it's going to be anything less than shambolic really. Hmm. Like, I do suppose that, you know, they have the absolute extortionate wealth that they'll somehow manage to pull something off. But it'll be very hard not to get a kind of hollow feeling out of it all. You know, you know, camera in the air pans away across from the stadium and see how kind of barren and, and, and like one giant um, building site nearly. I'd be very surprised if, if you know, they're able to get uh, everything done. Like I'm not sure if you saw some of the... The kind of the um, the graphics that were laid out for some of the stadiums, where you know there's trees and there's there's um, all these lovely paths laid out, and there's public transport. Whereas, um, by all accounts, you know public transport infrastructure isn't in place whatsoever. It'll all be very much um, cars and trying to get taxis and buses, in, you know, around the city. Um, and you know another point that's been highlighted regularly over the past couple of years has been you know the acceptance of lgbtq communities over in qatar during the world cup and i think uh, the qatar representatives you know they're saying you know everyone will be welcome but you know leave your flags and and, and your your rainbow flags etc at home um, for fear of, of getting attacked which which is is absolutely completely um crazy um that you know we're welcoming these people want but they can't you know show their colours and show their support for, for what they believe in. Um, so, yeah, I think, like you said, and I think we'll probably be looking back at this um, with kind of 
a great feeling of hollowness and and hopefully um you know we completely move away from from these types of events where it's just you know a, a huge activity in in sports washing um and i think with the tides definitely turned now um that you know there will be no um acceptance of it going forward um on another thing then quickly lads we'll finish off on this um report tonight um, and whenever you see Der Spiegel and Manchester City in the same sentence or, or, or in the same tweet, you know you're in for a treat. Um, a big investigation into their finances and I think new internal documents are, are showing that um, they've made um, huge gains um, over the course of the pandemic, which, you know, in, in, in for most businesses or pretty much all businesses, um, that's that seems like a, a bit of a stretch. Uh, I think they're up to number one in the world in terms of what they've, they've uh, earned. Um, there's there's reports that um, um, you know even down as far as Roberto Mancini um, earning kind of through weird consultancy contracts um, the nation the or the state of Abu Dhabi financing a huge portion of Manchester City that you know uh, reading a tweet here from from Nick Harris uh, at Sporting Intel. Um, one email um, was caught saying that um, from Etihad to Manchester City themselves, uh, quoting that, we think we have £35 million burning a hole in my wallet, which goes to show just how how flexible and how um, uh, how easy they were able to cook up the, the numbers over the past couple of years. And um, I think the worst thing about it is how brazen Manchester City have been for years, um, despite all of the, uh, the investigations from... Um, from the FA and you know the sporting bodies that they've they've denied everything they've you know complained complete innocence, but the numbers don't lie. I think and you know will anything come of it? It remains to be seen. But uh, a huge amount of dirty money it looks like flowing through Manchester City. Yeah, it's no different to what we expected. To be honest, I mean, I think the Premier League have been trying to investigate them for three years, but City have the masterstroke really and just burying them under legal documents um and their Spiegel seem to be, to be the only ones who seem to be able to <clears throat> get through that and and find out the dirt i mean it, it's been going on for a long time anyways there were rumors that vincent company was paid you know not only on top of his salaries like shares and companies in qatar and things like that and the way they've managed to go from six to first during a global pandemic in terms of the highest commercial earners and you know it's it's basically a state-backed football club anyway so you know it's similar to the Qatar situation in terms of how brazen they are about getting the World Cup I think it'll always be the same with City when you have that much financial muscle behind you and you're able to get bans overturned and you know I'm not saying this as a <laughs> bitter United fan or anything just as a as a football fan in general I mean they're not the only one obviously PSG and, and now Bayern unfortunately have have similar connections so um, it's it's another reason as to why the Super League tried to become so prominent as well because, you know, money rules everything and, and these top clubs have a lot of it uh, because of their situations. But um, I don't think anything will come of it as usual and uh, City will publicly deny everything like they usually do. But it's good at least that, you know, there are some reporters out there still trying to highlight the seriousness of, of this issue, but it also shows just how, how useless uh, financial fair play has been in general but um, yeah no surprise really that this has come out but I can't see anything changing really certainly in the short term for City 
Yeah, and well, like I mean, it kind of blows the lid off the uh, the notion of there being the separation between the state and the club, and it just kind of raises more questions about other teams. Like I mean, Man City are hardly the only ones doing this. Um, and yeah, as you said, like I mean, there should be sanctions, there should be penalties, but it's never going to happen. I think I I think that their Spiegel thing showed that they had um, something like a dozen of the world's top lawyers on retainer, twenty four hours of the day, ready to go. So it'll just get buried under under um, a mountain of of legal stuff, and it'll pop back up in another couple of years, and then it'll disappear again, and just kind of a bit of a sad cycle, unfortunately. We're joined by James Grimes from The Big Step, the campaign which aims to rid football of gambling ads from our screens and pitches around the country. James, thanks for coming on. Hope you're well. I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. No problem at all. Um, I suppose to start off, James, maybe tell us a little bit about your background um, that kind of led to launching The Big Step and, and other efforts to, to raise awareness around the issues with gambling in football. Of course. So the big step came from my own experiences of a a 12 year gambling disorder, which, um, as you can imagine, destroyed and consumed every area of my life. Um, I am now four years in recovery, but I I don't forget how bad and how and how much gambling took from me. And all of that started with a, a football bet at 16 years old. And I was I was 16 in around 2006, 2007, which in the UK was when the 2005 Gambling Act kicked in, which essentially allowed gambling companies to flood our screens through advertising, but also flood football pitches and shirts and stadiums. And I was a massive football fan. I am a massive football fan all my life. And I, I implicitly trusted football. I, I trusted what it told me. I, it meant so much to me. So when... All of a sudden, it started telling me to gamble and started to tell me to use the the companies, the gambling companies on the front of my favourite club shirt. At that age, I was very susceptible to it. And I did, thinking it was a completely normal, fun, innocent leisure activity without actually understanding there was any risk involved. When I became addicted to gambling, I, I vividly remember once thinking... I'm the only gambling addict in the world. I didn't realise that gambling addiction was such a thing. I just thought that, oh, it's just me that can't control myself. Or I've got an issue with it. I'm weak. I'm flawed. What I've subsequently learned is that gambling addiction affects a lot of people. And actually, it's not all the fault of the individual. A lot of the reason this happens is for a, for a multitude of reasons, which I'm sure we'll we'll get into Um and, and yeah, the addiction took me to some very dark places. I, I lost around £100,000, but I, I really don't like emphasising the money because gambling took so much more from me. It took, it took my mental health. It took my self-worth. It took my career prospects. It took, at, at the core of it, it took who I was. It took me from this sit, happy, motivated, bright, relatively popular 16-year-old into a a weak um, addict that had that had, was empty and hopeless and helpless, and it got to it got to a point which I feel like I always knew it was going to get to. Which at 28 years old, I was at rock bottom. I, I had nothing left. I had no hope, um, and it got to that fork in the road where 
it's something recovering gamblers talk about quite a lot. They, they reach that moment where it's either take your own life or, or stop gambling. I, I'm never take for granted the fact that I managed to stop because I now represent a charity called gambling with lives, which was set up by families bereaved by gambling related suicide and predominantly young men, unfortunately. And in, and in England alone, there's estimated 409 gambling suicides every single year. And, and that's so I could have been that statistic. I could have easily been one of those numbers. Um, and, and it, you know, it, it was, it was awful. And, I'm now in recovery, but but weeks into my recovery, I couldn't watch football because I was just getting triggered by the amount of gambling advertising and sponsorship within the sport. I was doing everything in my power not to gamble, but every time I watched the sport that I loved, I saw the word bet or I saw uh, a footballer telling me to gamble or I saw pitch-side advertising reminding me to gamble. And, and quite selfishly, maybe it is selfishly, I don't know, I didn't think it was, it was fair for, for my recovery to have to put up with this. Um, and, and then that's when I had the idea of what is now the big step. Um, and the name comes from the fact that predominantly we walk to football clubs with gambling partnerships. And we did our first walk in the start of 2019. And three years later, we've turned it into a full-time campaign, which feels like we're gaining momentum. I think more and more people are are on our side. I think football is slowly moving away from gambling sponsorship. We now have 20 clubs, including Drogheda United in the Republic of Ireland, who back our campaign. Um, and government are in both countries, government are reviewing gambling and the laws of gambling. So it's a really important time. Um, so that's a, that's a really whirlwind <laughs> story of the last 15 <laughs> years of my life. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 such a silent killer in many ways, um, kind of a gambling addiction. Um, you know, a lot of ca- uh, addiction, you know, impacting your mental health. Whereas that, you know, I find and, you know, kind of speaking slightly experienced myself when I used to dabble a little bit back in, say, in college, is that, you know, results really impact your mood. You know, you could ruin your weekends, uh, but you kind of, you know, you got on with it. Um, and it's kind of it's something that can really seep into into your mental health very very quickly over time. Um, in terms of gambling ads uh, and the big step, I mean, when I think of of gambling ads, I always think of the uh, the battery six five uh, Ray Winston kind of futuristic head flying around the screen. Is is there do you have you found that there's a kind of a correlation between the the kind of widespread advertisements you know across football and television on the on the hoardings on on football shirts with uh, kind of people finding that first steps into into gambling and and, and thinking you know if, if my favorite player can wear his uh, gambling and kind of promote it that it must be okay yeah definitely I, I mean my own experiences alone but I, I speak with hundreds of recovering gamblers and it's not always the case but so often football is the starting point and football is so often a gateway into the more addictive products. What normally happens is people go in innocently placing a small accumulator, for example, on a football match, but gambling companies now bombard you with cross-selling of their more addictive products like the online slot machines, like the online casinos. They'll offer you free spins, free bets. It's all about transferring you from being that recreational £5 a week customer to using these products that are guaranteed 
obscene profits every year. And football now is their biggest um, uh, market. That there's more betting on football than any other sport. And there's a reason why the gambling industry target football. I mean, anecdotally, I I also deliver gambling-based education in schools. And I I delivered a session the other day to to a group of 14-year-olds. And I asked them um, how many gambling companies could they name. And one one young lad named 17 gambling companies. And that just, it just astounded me. And, you know, it's It's it's, it's not to say that that... That just because you see a gambling advert or you know all the gambling companies, you're going to turn into a gambling addict. I don't think anyone's saying that. But one, that's not healthy. Two, what it does to those brands is it completely legitimizes them. You, if you if you know all these brands, you don't think these are brands that are selling addictive products and have some irresponsible practices and, and have products associated with addiction. And I think we're really storing up problems for future generations of young people. And I really don't think we've seen the consequences of that and probably until it's too late. James, you mentioned the uh, British government and obviously they're trying to take this very seriously in our own country here in Ireland. Obviously we've had, you know, a proposed gambling reform bill as, you know, as soon as last year. Um, But it's something that we've been lacking at government level for a very long time. The UK always interests me because of their approach, especially to like fixed odd betting terminals and not um, uh, keeping those legal. How do you feel the government is genuinely taking this in terms of how serious they view it? Well, the, the Conservative government pledged in their manifesto to review the Gambling Act. I think any government would have seen that the current laws of gambling are completely outdated. It makes, I think it makes more references to telephone betting as in ringing up to place a bet than it does online gambling which shows how woefully inadequate it is and, and I you know in one breath I, I like to think they're taking it seriously but the cynic in me thinks the reality is there is a lot of people that benefit from the status quo the, the football industry benefits from the status quo the media industry of course the gambling industry so you've got essentially you've got an establishment, a gambling establishment of, every, of lots of people that are benefiting financially, and for for a conservative government possibly to cut across that and, and reduce profits, we'll we'll see. We we are we are hopeful on the issue of of gambling sponsorship in football, but we really don't want it to be a tokenistic headline grabbing measure and, and just say oh we're just going to take gambling brands off the front of Premier League shirts because actually what would be the justification of doing that but allowing 100 mentions of the word bet every minute around flashing around the side of the pitch um i think and if the, if this review isn't right there is there is scope for for football to act itself and ideally football and football clubs would make the right decision and not have gambling partnerships anyway um but yeah and it's obviously not just about advertising there's lots of things up for grabs and i think both um ireland and the uk one thing that that does seem likely is is a statutory levy of of around one percent on gambling industry profits, which would then fund research, education, and, and treatment. At the moment, we've got the the ludicrous situation where the gambling industry decides how much uh, money to give to that sort of stuff and who to give it to. So you've got the gambling industry funding research, which tells them that their advertising isn't harmful, which just blows my mind that we're, that we're even in this situation. So I'm hoping that's one thing, yeah, both countries will do. James, in terms of the big step then, just looking at the, the list of clubs and you mentioned 
Drogheda United um, are, are amongst them um, from the from the League of Ireland. Um, I suppose you know it's notable that there aren't any say Premier League clubs or kind of you know uh, big clubs in England on board yet. And I just kind of look at say for example the rise of cryptocurrency and NFTs lately, and say that the mockery of which. Uh, and disdain with which uh, Liverpool, who recently came out with their own NFT line, um, were faced with. You know, people really kind of wrote them off immediately. Is that where we need to get with, with gambling? Is that you know uh, we kind of treat any club, any any kind of uh, affiliation or sponsorship with a kind of a, a touch of you know them becoming a pariah? That you know we don't need gambling, and it's nearly kind of bad PR in a way that, it, you know, if clubs are on board with, uh, with get major gambling firms? Yeah, I think so. The first thing I'll say is that I'm glad I got Drogheda pr- uh, pronouncement right. No one called me up on that, and I'm quite quite <laughs> proud of that. Um, but no, I, th- I think football seems determined to just do anything it can to monetize its fans and to profit from its fans at the moment, which includes obviously yeah. gambling. Um, the, the last thing that we would want is for gambling sponsorship and advertising to go and then immediately replaced by crypto stuff. But I, I do have to be honest and say... I don't. I haven't seen copious amounts of harm caused by crypto and NFTs, and I, I'm, that's not my experience. So my focus is gambling sponsorship and advertising. Mm. And, and yeah, if, I think recently, if you see more and more clubs when when they announce partnerships of this kind, you'll see the negative reaction. And I genuinely don't think three years ago that um, there was that negative reaction with gambling partnerships, but now there does seem to be overwhelming consensus among fans that they don't want a gambling company on the front of their shirt. They don't want to be a walking billboard for these companies. Um, and, and we talk about the list of the clubs that back the big step. I mean, you're right, we haven't got a Premier League club. And the, the reason for that is there's not any Premier League clubs that don't have a gambling partner, which I think says it all. Um, James, I um I came across a stat on um one of the big step uh, affiliated websites that um well to be honest it, it terrified me to be honest and uh, the stat is that there are over fifty thousand children in the UK that are addicted to gambling and um I was just wondering like is there any information about what kind of gambling these children are addicted to because like I can't imagine kids are going into betting shops and filling out uh, slips so they must be kind of getting their fix uh, from different forms of gambling. You're right. Yeah. Um, the, the study it's a gambling commission study that estimated there's 55,000 children addicted to already addicted to gambling in this country. But the, the majority of the activities are things like arcades, um, scratch cards, uh, gambling with friends. I don't think, you know, let's, let's be honest and, and serious about this. I don't think even regulated gambling companies, they don't want 13 year olds on their site. Like they're not trying to get money off them. But I think that's not the point. I think the point is, is you are normalizing a product and glamorizing the product so much to young people that when they are legal age to use it, they think it's a completely risk-free activity. And obviously 55,000 children addicted to gambling is a scary heroin statistic, but I think what's more scary is the fact that YouGov and GamblerWare estimated a couple of weeks ago that there's 1.4 million people with a gambling addiction and millions more at risk and millions more being harmed by someone else's gambling. So when we're talking about those figures, it really is time for a public health approach to to reducing and preventing gambling harm. 
I mean, even when you look at, say, uh, video games, you know, such as FIFA and the kind of the how they've been able to monetize that and buying FIFA packs and, and spending money on coins, um, it, it's it you can see how quickly um, a child or, or, or a teenager who, you know, playing a very innocent game can quickly kind of fall into the trap of, you know, trying to spend more, trying to gain more. And that can very easily, I can, I imagine, uh, kind of translate into, um, you know, betting on, on actual football. Yeah, I'm, I'm, in a way, I'm glad that I'm not a teenager now because I think I would have been even more addicted. And I don't say this lightly either, but I do think it's addiction by design. I think both the gaming and gambling industry are, are de- deliberately addicting people because it creates profit. And I'm not saying there's people... It, I don't think there's humans sitting there thinking, how are we going to addict children? But I think it's an inevitable consequence of their business model is that they need custom, they need repeat custom, they need people to stay on their product as long as possible. And the, the design features of, of like packs in FIFA and things like that are very similar to an online casino, an online slot machine. It's all about that risk and reward behavior. And as I said, I work in schools and it's something that comes up quite a lot. And I think parents can you know see the financial impact of something like that but i don't think there's enough awareness out there about what that's doing to young people's brains for the for the longer term um so when they do get to 18 they've had years of not just gambling messaging but actual gambling based behavior in their in their brain james we've recently seen rules introduced that now <clears throat> stop celebrities and and sports stars promoting uh, gambling adverts obviously Jose Mourinho was one of the more famous ones in the last few years do you think that'll have a positive influence on potentially curbing this problem I think it's a, a positive step in the right direction I'm always always a bit dubious when there's voluntary codes and there's lots of caveats to it and it's from the ASA which to be honest don't do a lot and have allowed uh, have partly allowed gambling companies to, to do all this advertising. Um, I think what it will do is it's quite a significant um, it's quite a significant move in terms of denormalizing and deglamorizing gambling a bit. Um, but it has to be a step towards, you know, an end to gambling advertising and sponsorship in football. We're gonna have a situation where some high profile footballers aren't going to be allowed to promote gambling on TV but they are going to be allowed to promote gambling while they're actually playing football, which once again just seems a complete contradiction. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's going to be, I, I, I really don't want it to be something that is going to allow the government not to act as it should act. Um, but yeah, it, it is a positive move. I think what it does, it signifies that the, the debate is moving along, the goalposts are shifting a bit because you know, the, I think the public would have seen this news and, and thought, Actually, yeah, I don't really want to see Crouchy and Jamie Redknapp and Jose Mourinho telling me to use online casinos. Um, And yeah, positive, but a lot more to go. Is there any other um, kind of, uh, you know, areas that you'd like to see um, put in place, you know, beyond just just, uh, player advertisements? I mean, I suppose the big one that catches a lot of people's attention is... um, is shirt sponsorship, uh, and you know you've you've kids and you've people going out buying shirts with 
with what's usually an Asian gambling brand that nobody's ever heard of, but seems to have the financial clout to be able to, to get themselves on a, on a football shirt. Is there any other areas where, I don't know, the leagues or, or government should be should be looking to, to try and curb? Yeah, I mean, the Big Step campaign is seeking to end all gambling advertising sponsorship in football, which would include shirt sponsorship, pitch side advertising, league and competition naming. I don't think it's normal or safe to refer to three of our leagues in England as the Sky Bet League. I think that is genuinely something we will look back one day and think, what were we doing? You wouldn't call, well, we did call something the, the Lambert and Butler whatever competition i feel like it's very similar to what we're doing now um but advertising is restrictions shouldn't just happen in football i think there are many areas that are appealing to children i don't think you know i think we need to be realistic i think for for sports like horse racing um greyhound racing there is justification for for them to be allowed to to advertise it's where there's that really high concentration of, of young people watching but advertising is just one part of it i mean there, there is an argument for saying, well, um, just because you take the advertising away doesn't mean the product's any safer. So it has to be uh, come with other measures, such as a stake reduction on the most addictive products. We've, in the England, in England, it's two pound per spin on a fixed odds betting terminal in a high street bookmakers, but you're allowed to spin five hundred, a thousand pound a second on online gambling which once again seems one of those things that why, why have we allowed that to happen? So that, and I think generally just better public health messaging. The only messages that we get at the moment are so-called responsible gambling messages, such as when the fun stop stop is the, is the famous one, but there's now take time to think. And if you, if you ever see 32 red advertising, they say things like keep gambling fun um, and stay in control from the outside looking in, you might think, oh, yeah, they're, they're quite good messages. But that whole idea puts the onus of responsibility on an individual. And, it, and as someone that's experienced addiction, they, those messages don't work. And there's research to back that up. They are, they are actually some research has shown that those messages increase people's propensity to gamble. And when the fun stop stop had a massive fun in the middle of it in, with, that was that was lit up occasionally and you just think that's not enough and proper public health messaging and, and the truth the truth behind the brands that we see across our tv and that is that 99 percent of customers lose if you win you're likely to get your account restricted the more you lose the more likely you are to get incentivized and carry on your addiction and that is the reality behind this industry but you can do all that without being an anti-gambling prohibitionist i support the people's right to have a bet and i would want that still to happen but at the moment the industry in its current form it is not safe so a lot needs to happen um and, and education as well I, I i do education at the moment i think education of gambling is a is a raindrop in an ocean of gambling normalization but the the, the full information to young people must be heard it can't just be about Gambling is fun and fine as long as you do it responsibly. Actually, no. Gambling carries a really dangerous risk to every area of your life. And if you're going to get involved, you need to know all the things that I've listed above. Mm. I mean, we, we, we've seen it here in Ireland. Um, a couple of famous books, 2010 in particular, comes to mind where, um, um, you know, uh, Tony O'Reilly had a, 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 
you know, very bad gambling addiction and he was nearly being rewarded by the gambling firms. You know, they were taking him out. They were, you know, treating him to matches and stuff just because he was spending so much money with them. Whereas, you know, as you said, people who tend to win money uh, get restricted and kind of have obstacles in place to, to try and stop them from betting more, which, um, you know, from the outside looking in is absolutely crazy that that, that is allowed to happen. Um, and I always, you know, if you talk back to, you know, short sponsorships, I always kind of think of how weird it is to see old Formula One clips where you have like Marlboro and kind of cigarette brands on, on the cars. And I, I, I'd imagine in 10, 20, 30 years time when we're looking at old clips of football and you see Battery 6.5 and all of these kind of random gambling ads all over sport that we'll probably be thinking the same thing of you know in retrospect how how, how mad it was oh uh, yeah I, I i hope so um i you know I, the, the tobacco industry at the time I, I mean i was only a child so i barely remember it well, i don't remember it but they they said that these sports would collapse without tobacco sponsorship money and they also distorted the evidence and they said that tobacco advertising doesn't cause people to smoke and I think exactly the same thing is is happening with gambling now. And the, the financial argument is one that's already been dealt with. We've got we've got twenty clubs, which isn't loads, but we've got twenty clubs that are surviving, and some of them are thriving without gambling advertising money. And a, a report said that if you took gambling sponsorship out of football, it'd be the equivalent of a two point five percent cut in revenues. And you know, I saw a I saw a newspaper report last week that said the Premier League spends. £275 million a year on agents' fees alone, and gambling sponsorship brings in £110 million. So it's not even half of agents' fees that is being given by gambling companies. So football can afford to live without gambling sponsorship. And just the final thing on, on Tony O'Reilly, actually. Tony is an inspiration to me. When I was in my lowest possible moment and I was you know, contemplating suicide, didn't know what I was going to do. I was in a basement with no windows um i because i couldn't gamble i'd run out of money i was actually watching on youtube people gamble uh, just to get my fix and it was just about enough to keep me going and then coincidentally his documentary popped up about tony 10 about what happened to him and it was the first time that i realized you can have your life destroyed by addiction especially mm. gambling addiction and come out the other side and i've now I've subsequently met Tony a couple of times um, and it's always emotional, but he, he is an inspiration and I'd encourage everyone to yeah read that book, Tony 10. Absolutely. I know he's done a, a, a huge amount of work in Ireland to raise awareness um, and absolutely too, Tony 10 is a, a fantastic read there by, by Declan Lynch. Um, James, thanks a million for coming on. I, I suppose just to quickly mention the big step, you, you, you said you have 20 clubs. We we have a little bit of League of Ireland representation there, which is great to see. But um, fingers crossed that list begins to grow and I see no reason why it shouldn't over the next uh, weeks and, and months and years. I, I hope so. And I, and I can give you a bit of an exclusive. There'll be another League of Ireland club back in our, ca oh. our campaign next week. So I can't give it away, but we've got another Fantastic. one joining. So that's an exclusive. <laughs> I haven't told anyone that. Big exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> Great stuff. We're looking forward to that, uh, to see who it is. But um, James, really appreciate you coming on tonight. My pleasure. Thank you for having me again. Respect, man. Respect, respect. Respect, man. 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 Respect
<laughs> so we leave it there so, okey-doke. Good night and God bless. <laughs>